0: If you've ever thought of visiting Antarctica, there's a few things you need to
1: know. It's the highest, driest, windiest, coldest land on Earth. It is uh, absolutely inimical to human life and beyond the coasts to life itself.
0: Julian Sancton reports on what it's like to reach the icy world of penguins and researchers and how increases in tourism and climate change are impacting Antarctica. Have you ever seen a forest migrate? Zach St. George tells us how and why they do just that
2: the disaster would be if trees didn't move, and if the ranges of trees didn't move.
0: And we'll hear what attracts Romans, poets, and A-list celebrities
3: to the lakes of northern Italy.
4: The water is coming fresh from the Dolomites, from the glacier, so you can swim in the lake every day. It's spotlessly clean.
3: La Dolce Vita is what is famous.
0: Antarctic tourism, the journeys of trees, and the villas and views of Italy's lake district. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. In a moment, Julian Sancton tells us what it was like to voyage to Antarctica while researching his book about what the Belgica expedition was getting into at the end of the world, at the end of the 19th century. We'll also see what trees can teach us as changing climate conditions speed up their migration into new territories. And it's been a popular retreat since Roman times. Friends who live in Italy's Lake District describe the region's appeal just an hour away from the bustle and hustle of Milan. Antarctica. It's captured the imagination of authors, explorers, and scientists for ages. It's one of the most hostile and remote locations on Earth, and now it's emerging as a tourist destination. Writer Julian Sancton visited Antarctica to research an ill-fated Belgian expedition there back in 1897 for his book Madhouse at the End of the Earth, the Belgica's journey into the dark Antarctic night. He joins us today to talk about his experience, the ins and outs of visiting such an extreme location, and the ethical question of whether to go at all. Julian, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So um, can you give us just a a brief overview of your experience in Antarctica? What got you interested in why did you go down
1: there? Well, I was researching uh, what would become my book, Madhouse at the End of the Earth, about, uh, as you say, an expedition in the late 19th century to the Antarctic Peninsula and to the Bellingshausen Sea. And while I didn't want to uh, replicate everything about their expedition, certainly not the being trapped in ice for more than a year and the descent into madness, I did feel like it was essential to travel there myself uh, in order to convey the sights and sounds and smells of this continent and really render this setting in, uh, in three dimensions. Okay.
0: Now, the Belgica was 1897, and this was during a period when it seems like there was a a rush of interest in, you know, polar expeditions. Give us a brief overview of the history of exploration of Antarctica.
1: Captain James Cook in the late 18th century was the first to see it. He didn't actually venture there. The first time anybody landed on Antarctica was in 1820. Then came whalers and sealers, one expedition in the middle of the 19th uh, century, and then it was really not much at all until the Belgica expedition. And that kicked off what is now known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Uh, Many of your listeners will have heard of Ernest Shackleton, Robert Falcon Scott, and Roald Amundsen, who, as I should mention, was a a first mate on the Belgica before discovering the South Pole. All of those Mm -hmm. were the great heroes of this age. After a while, it, it became less of a playing ground for a sportsman-like contest to reach these great exploits and became something of interest to scientists who established bases who, up until World War II and shortly after, all, were also looking into you know establishing military bases there. But then after 1959 and the signing of the Antarctic Treaty, which forbade military activity and encouraged international scientific cooperation on the continent— there started to be a trickle of tourists, a trickle of people who wanted to see this for themselves. And what became a few hundred every year grew to a few thousand mm-hmm. um, visitors to Antarctica. And by the time I went, at the end of the last decade, there were 55,000 tourists per year. In, uh, in a given year.
0: Wow. What is there now as far as permanent buildings and, and bases? Is it Nobody lives there other than scientists, is that right?
1: Scientists and, and support personnel. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a very small number of people living there year-round, and uh, they're a hardy group, let me tell you. Uh, there are people at the South Pole Station, which is jointly operated by a number of uh, Actually on the South Pole? Actually on the South Pole, yeah. Wow. And uh, believe it or not, they're um, studying the, the effects of long-term isolation there in order to... Create a model for Martian exploration because it's that's so how remote that, it is.
0: Do they just fly in? Is there a little airstrip there?
1: Yeah, you, you would have to fly or or chopper in. But you can only really even if there's an emergency, you 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 can't extract people uh, for uh, a, a good part of the year because it's it's, it's that's how hostile an environment wow. is. I mean, the, the, the temperature dips down to you know minus sixty if I'm not mistaken, if not more.
0: Right. So there's scientists living there is there, is there also a like um is there some land or is it just ice uh, locked
1: Well the the difference between the Arctic and the Antarctic is that the Arctic is an ocean of ice with you know a few few islands of course but for the most part uh, when you're on the North Pole and you stay there uh you're not going to be on the North Pole for long because it's constantly drifting whereas right. the Antarctic and this was unknown until the, the the first few years of the 20th century the Antarctic is one solid continent and when you're on the south pole you are standing on about a miles worth of uh, of ice but it's on top of land
0: wow so you're 5000 or more feet above sea level and it's basically all ice i guess it's mountains is the high- and ice yep. on top of that yep
1: exactly it's the highest driest windiest coldest land on earth it is uh, absolutely inimical to human life and beyond the coasts to life itself
0: and if any place on the Earth was going to not be owned by any country, perhaps this is a good place that way. Does this treaty actually that's a good hold way to, to this that's, day? that's a
1: good way to put it. You know, it's, it's either a great optimistic moment for humanity to think that there's never been a war fought over it, or it's an acknowledgment of the fact that there's not much to fight over.
0: Travel writer and editor Julian Sancton took a tour to Antarctica to see with his own eyes what the crew of the first polar expeditions would have encountered. His book about the icebound voyage of the Belgica is called Madhouse at the End of the Earth. It's just been released in paperback. Julian's with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves for a deeper look at what he discovered about tourism to Antarctica. His website is juliansancton.com. So, Julian, if somebody wants to go there today, as a tourist, as you said, 55,000 people would go in a normal year these days, how do you get there? Do you go down to South America and then take a... I mean, I'm kind of kidding there, but are there <laughs> cruises or do you fly in or what What do these 55,000 people do to get there?
1: Well, there's various ways to get down there, are various access points. One is South America, which is the way I got there. One is uh, South Africa and one is, you know, New Zealand. So these
0: are jumping off points for ships or for planes then? With
1: well, for, for both. Uh, up until recently, the way that uh, tourists would get there, or at least I'm, I'm most familiar with, South America because that is the way that the men of the Belgica got there they left from right. uh, Ushuaia in Argentina
0: and this was across Drake Passage right
1: across the Drake Passage which is and that's uh, a scary hundreds passage. of miles yep of of tumultuous waters and it's notoriously nauseating um I did not feel that it was essential to go through the Drake Passage I've got a, a friend who is a, an Antarctic tour guide who told me that it's you know the two days that it takes to cross the Drake Passage, give you the sense of how remote this is and how separate it is from anything we would call normal life.
0: If you go through that, I mean, if you did, that would be a romantic and, and emotional way to approach. What would. would you experience? I mean, how do you know all of a sudden you're in, in the Antarctic? I mean, you talked about this Antarctic convergence and see yeah. different seabirds and so on. Yeah. What's uh, What's that first like, hey, welcome to the continent?
1: You would start seeing skewers, uh, petrels, you know, you would see different species of penguin as opposed to the Magellanic penguin. No uh, you polar would start bears, seeing. by
0: the way. we got to remind people, polar bears should actually be called north polar bears, right?
1: Yes. If you see a polar bear, then you're going the wrong way. Um, <laughs> okay,
0: but lots so, of penguins.
1: Yeah. Typically, there is a a shroud of fog that has to do with uh, th- the cold front coming from the Antarctic and, and and the warm front coming from the north. And this makes it so that on a typical day, you would see Antarctica appear as a, through a mist, which is just a, a you know an unbelievably romantic uh, image.
0: That could be one of the great moments for travelers anywhere on this planet. Uh, we're talking with Julian Sancton. His book is "Madhouse at the End of the Earth: The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night." And Julian, your book is is so fascinating; it very well could inspire lots of people to want to travel to Antarctica. But there is an ethical issue. And when we think of Antarctica, we think also about, you know, the plight of of our environment and and the melting ice cap. Uh, Yeah. Did you wrestle with that? Uh, I really did. What are the ethics of this?
1: I did wrestle with it. I always thought that it should be a place that remains sort of romantically inaccessible, that we should know that it's there. And that that should be enough. That seeing okay, it with your own eyes for the penguins
0: eyes. and for the research scientists.
1: Yeah, yeah. Of course, my my calculus changed when, when I started writing this book, and maybe it was self serving, but it didn't well, mean that I didn't wrestle a, with the dilemma. You're a
0: reporter. You're a reporter. You're working on it. There's scientists that are there. You know, there's certain cases, but mass. Sure, but for tourism, the average person, as, yeah. You know, as we have privileged people who can afford to jet down there and go there, it does it does take its toll.
1: It does. The you realize that the. Even though the ecosystem looks quite similar to the way it did in the photographs from the expedition that I write about 120 years ago, it looks as if nothing has changed. But in fact, things have changed quite dramatically, even though they're not really visible. These changes are not visible to the naked eye. And one of the great things that uh, most of these two operators do is they have citizen science programs that for those who are interested, you're able to go with their scientists on board and collect data with them. And the data—that's precious data because you know not every scientific or academic uh, or government institution is able to go down there as frequently as tour operators do. So they do actual real work, and you're able to be in the Zodiac with them and take water samples or you know study the health of of the marine life. So one thing that a marine biologist made very clear to me is that the increased meltwater from the icebergs from the higher temperatures is decreasing the salinity of the water along the coast of the peninsula. And so that decreased salinity makes it a less hospitable environment for the phytoplankton that krill feast on. And the whole ecosystem depends on krill. And so when you realize that glaciers are melting at an increased rate, that uh, whole ice shelves are breaking off. there's sections the size of Delaware that are suddenly breaking off. uh, Hmm. And uh, there's the threat that glaciers will start pouring into the sea and raise sea levels that all weighs heavily on your mind. And you realize that the emissions that it took to get you and your shipmates there, uh, let alone the emissions that I was responsible for, because I flew over the Drake passage, um, that, that does create a sense of guilt. I think it's impossible to see this landscape without Mm -hmm. guilt.
0: Right. And you know, that's, that's an interesting um, takeaway Julian, because more and more we have to struggle with the ethics of travel. And if you're going to go there it's really an interesting option, but it comes with it some uh, a, a little bit of thoughtfulness.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you're going to make that choice to go to Antarctica, I, I think it's almost certain that it's going to change you in some way. Um, they say to leave only footprints and take only photos, but I think you should also take with you a real sense of responsibility for preserving the beauty of the of this landscape that you've experienced and really become a, a warrior for the environment.
0: Yeah, that's my kind of souvenir. Julian Sancton, thank you so much for joining us and, and giving us a better understanding about Antarctica. Thanks so much. Julian Sancton tells us about the Belgica's icebound Antarctic expedition on Travel with Rick Steves program number 656. It's in our show archives at slash radio. Up next, Zach St. George explains why the forests are restless. And after that, we're off to Northern Italy's scenic lake district. Then toilà Dave Fox, toil sang Tan Pho Ho Chi Minh, và toil đi du lịch với Rick Steves. Hi, my name is Dave Fox. I live in Ho Chi Minh City, and I travel with Rick Steves. Then Dave Fox, toil sang Tan Pho Ho Chi Minh, và toil đi du lịch với Rick Steves. You could call Zach St. George a tree hugger, and he wouldn't take offense. Zach has distilled years of scientific reporting and debate into a fascinating book that introduces us to five particular species of trees in a way that we get to know each of them almost as a community, a community battling environmental challenges and a community that's literally on the move. His book is The Journeys of Trees, a story about forests, people, and the future. Zach, thanks for joining us at Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks so much for having me. So I just think it's fascinating. First of all, you write this book, uh, The Journeys of Trees, and you write about trees as communities. What inspired you?
2: Yeah, I think it was in 2014. I was living in California, and there was a lot of news about uh, the plight of giant sequoias, which, of course, are the biggest trees on Earth and some of the oldest and uh, tallest and all the other things we we like about trees and california was having a drought at that point so i went up and and was talking with scientists in sequoia national park and they were really worried about the the future and the the very near future of these really ancient beings there at the park and it it kind of set me down this investigation and and my own journey into kind of what trees mean to us and what the future holds in store for trees and forests.
0: Well, if we think about it in a, in a sort of a, a micro way, we could just look at sequoias. I mean, it's called Sequoia National Park. And you wrote in your book that uh, the time may come when there's no more sequoias in Sequoia National Park. In fact, the time may come where there's no more Joshua trees in Joshua Tree National Park. And the fascinating thing is, it's not that there's no more sequoias. They just may be moving out in order to accommodate the changes in the environment.
2: Yeah. You know, really, the disaster would be if trees didn't move and if the ranges of trees didn't move. So as conditions change on Earth, you know, the the places that will be suitable to any one species will change. And so, of course, when we're talking about trees moving, we're talking about an iterative process. So you don't have individual trees getting up and moving, but you have, you know, the old trees dying in one part of the range and not being replaced and and new seedlings popping up in new places. And so kind of over time, the range shifts. And so from the tree's perspective, that's kind of what's always happened. And that's what needs to happen. And, you know, it's the same for for every other kind of life on Earth. You know, movement in response to changing conditions is what has to happen. The, The disaster comes in from the human perspective. And when you talk about a place like Sequoia National Park, you know, trees are very much kind of physical markers of place. You know, Sequoia National Park is named because of these trees that are so characteristic of it. So to us, it's a disaster. From the tree's perspective, moving in response to change is very normal.
0: Hmm. So it's happened in the past. I mean, you you read about how you can look at fossils and you can learn that, of course, it's not in, in a human time frame, but it's in a geological time frame. Can we learn about our trajectory by looking at fossils?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, fossils are often the best hints we have of the future because we can look at how things have behaved in the past. We know that 12,000 years ago, Canada and uh, much of Alaska and much of northern Europe were covered in vast ice sheets as, as big as the one that now is covering Antarctica. And what's there today covering Canada are these enormous forests. And so right there we have clear evidence of of when the world warms, you know, you you have a giant shift and you have this huge forest uh springing up and spreading across Canada. So that so that's a good example of how trees have have traveled in the past.
0: You know, I just got kind of happy right there because for a moment I was out of my human-centric viewpoint of the ecosystem or Gaia. And and you just said, well, it used to be a nice sheet, and now it's a blanket of forests. And of course, that's you know, that's a, a huge amount of time. But but life does go on, and 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 the world accommodates these changes. And it might be bad news for our economy right now, but from the world's point of view, who cares?
2: The one difference, um, and it's an important difference that's happening now, is that it's happening much faster than at most periods in mm. the past. And so there's been a lot of. Worry on the part of scientists and conservationists going back 20 years now about whether many species would keep up. And so trees are a great example because, you know, trees are not very fast beings. It takes a long time for a forest to yeah. shift its range.
0: Because, I mean, I think of it like there's, you know, in the future, there will be climate refugee communities of people where just entire communities will just have to vacate an island that's going below sea level or to leave a, a delta that is no longer inhabitable. Climate does change slowly over time, but in our lifetime it 's changing in human generations rather than in in many centuries of time and trees physically can't keep up with the change which endangers the trees
2: right so for some rare isolated species, they could even face extinction, so yeah there's there's a, a real problem for many species. And that's
0: what you bring out so vividly in your book, The Journeys of Trees. Zach St. George is the author of The Journeys of Trees. He's joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You'll also find Zach's byline on occasion in such publications as The Atlantic, Scientific American, and Outside Magazine. His website is zachstgeorge.com. That's Z-A-C-H-S-T-George.com. Zach, you wrote about how there's a tree in... Florida, the Florida Torrea. It's a, a tree that's stuck in the wrong place, kind of like you mentioned polar bears in a zoo sometimes end up growing algae on their fur and turning it kind of green because they're stuck in the wrong place. Tell us about that specific example, you know, where we see one tree that's, that really doesn't belong where it happens to be. How did that happen, and what is the consequence?
2: Yeah, so that's another thing that I really learned in the course of, of writing this book, is that you can look around you at the living things in the world and sort of realize that, you know, some of them are maybe not living in the place they would most like to be. They're living in a place they can survive, but uh, maybe it's not their ideal setting. And, you know, that that has obviously human analogs. Many of us are not in quite the situation we'd like to be. But this this Florida Terea is a tree that it lives in a tiny corner of the Florida Panhandle. And, um, by all appearances, it is not very happy. It seems to be a tree that would be uh, doing much better further north. So a lot of people think it's kind of a tree that when the uh, ice retreated um, and the world warmed up 12,000 years ago, it sort of just got stuck there. And it, it reached places that it couldn't cross and um, Mm. so it's been stuck in Florida.
0: I guess there is some environments where it's easier to migrate even in slow motion and other environments where you just reach a wall or or the end of an island or the end of a peninsula or something like that. Now, Zach, you talk about the obstacles or or threats to the health of trees. Uh, There's invasive pests, there's wildfires, there's humans, and there's climate change. We'll get to climate change in just a moment, but how are invasive pests, uh, how are wildfires, and how are humans a threat to forests?
2: Yeah, those are all big threats. I mean, in the last 10,000 years, really since the dawn of agriculture, humans have, have cut down about half of the world's forests, scientists estimate. I mean, really, you could think of cutting down those forests as really humanity's biggest collective project. And most of that is, is uh, in service of agriculture. We, we need the, the space,
0: Wow, you just said something fascinating. The, the biggest collective process of humankind has been cutting down the trees that keep our ecosystem healthy.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, you could think about it as this kind of uh, enormous terraforming project that we've all undertaken for dozens or hundreds of generations.
0: So just clearing away so we can make room for, for big agriculture. So the humans yeah. are problems. Uh, what about invasive pests?
2: Right. So we mentioned earlier that, you know, sometimes the place where you find species is not necessarily the best place on Earth for them. I mean, if you could try everywhere on Earth out. So actually what we've done probably since kind of the dawn of, of again, agriculture and and cities and commerce, but especially since World War II, is, is move species all over the world. And so often, species do very well in the places that we move them. And sometimes those species are insects or fungi that uh, really like the trees in the places that we've moved them to. So there's really famous examples in the United States. The American chestnut was killed by a fungus beginning in the early 1900s. The American elms, which lined many streets across the eastern United States and Midwest, were killed by a fungus, also from Eastern Asia. And currently, we're losing our ash trees. There's 16 different species of ash trees in the United States, and they're all being killed off by Mm. this uh, beetle. So those are all good examples of how things can go wrong when you move species around the world.
0: In fact, one chapter in your book is called Kiss Your Ash Goodbye. I thought it was quite clever. You also mentioned wildfires. I mean, I'm a little confused about wildfires because it seems like a natural thing when you you know, you know have to thin out a forest with fires, and that happens over time. But how is that a threat to the well-being of forests in general?
2: Wildfires are another good example of where a natural disaster, um, our term for it is a disaster. From the trees' perspective, fire is quite normal it's it's um, many species even need fire to uh, open their seeds or open their their cones rather and, and and help perpetuate the species, but obviously it is a disaster from a human perspective, either when um, you have human buildings burnt, human lives lost, you know smoke covering hmm. cities for months on end. Okay, so
0: fires are a problem not be, not to trees, but of people who live with the trees then.
2: Yeah, and it can be both. I mean, you know, in the American West, where we're really seeing in this country the, the worst effects of fire, it's hard to disentangle a change in climate and the effects of fire suppression because we, we've gotten over the last hundred years really into a very unnatural um, fire regime is what the scientists call it, in terms of how big the fires are, how frequent they are. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're really in a a strange place in the American West uh, with our fires. And it's getting to the point where suppression is becoming more difficult and probably untenable.
0: Hmm. Journalist Zach St. George was raised in Alaska, educated in California, and is based now in Baltimore. He explores the migration of tree species and what we can do to protect the forest habitat in his book called The Journeys of Trees. In it, he reports on what people are doing to help five particular species of trees and how our fate is tied to theirs. You'll find articles Zach has written about the practicalities of addressing a changing climate on his Zach St. George website. That's Z-A-C-H-S-T-George.com. Zach, when I read through your book, it's it's just enthralling, and it, I'm a travel writer, and it's kind of a travel book in a way, and we can a- approach a forest like we would approach a different culture in our travels. Take us through a mindset that you wish we would have to appreciate if we're alone walking through a magnificent, a majestic forest.
2: The thing that I really learned to see when I visit a forest is, is its transient nature. You know, I'm looking at seedlings, I'm looking at the dead trees, and understanding that those are their own kind of movement. You know, every time a tree dies, or a tree sprouts, that forest as a whole is is shifting a little bit, and things are changing. And it's almost a, uh, it's almost just a trick of imagination more than it is something you can physically see, because of course, it's happening outside of the human time frame, But I think it's a way into a sort of long-term perspective to to go into a forest and just think oh, about. Oh, I like where what it's...
0: you just hit there. It's outside of the human time frame. My frustration even within the human time frame is is we do things in four-year election cycles. We'll change our policies and everything. We're so impatient. Things move slowly. Things have to have time to get rooted. And now our challenge is to see things not even with a, a patient human time frame but far beyond that.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that's what's useful about trees in in a way is is trees are kind of this ancient symbol, this cultural symbol of a long-term perspective and um, kind of thinking beyond the usual terms of human life an individual human life. And so I think it can be useful to Look at a tree and and think about who planted it or how it planted itself and look at a seedling and and think where it's going and just realize that life extends far beyond ourselves.
0: Life extends far beyond ourselves. And, I mean, I've got this notion that the world is an organism, this Gaia thing. And trees are like fuzz on the skin of Gaia. And it's an (laughs) organism that has a function to harvest solar energy. Do you work to get people to appreciate the value of trees in a broad sense like that?
2: Yeah, I really like that. I mean, my interest in certain ways is less about trees themselves and more about what they elicit in people. The people um as always are maybe the most interesting part because people are are just fascinating. And, and so I met a bunch of people who are confronting these giant problems um, of, of climate change, of invasive species, of deforestation, and they're trying to respond and make things better. And I think in the course of doing that, they're, they're kind of taking this longer tree-like perspective and thinking in multiple generations and, and, and thinking about the future in a more thoughtful way than is, than is normal. You know, and some, some of these efforts certainly um, will help the trees, I think it's safe to say. And, and some of them, it's a, a bit ambiguous. It's kind of hard to say whether the, the tree species, if it could advocate for itself, whether it would really want the help. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, so it's a mix of human ideals and emotions and um, just kind of the will to do something in the face of an uncertain future.
0: I suppose one common trait these people that you've encountered and have been fascinated and inspired by is they are people who generally do not underestimate or underrate the importance of trees for our planet's health.
2: Yeah. You know, the average person kind of sees trees as kind of background. They are big. They're slow-growing, slow-moving. So I think it's easy to take trees for granted and not really pay a lot of attention, but... um, they have a huge impact on our lives, and, and so I think when you do take a little bit more time to pay attention to them, it can be really rewarding.
0: I was going to ask you, what's the the takeaway that you hope readers get from your book? And it might be just that. What What is the takeaway for you, for people that are going to read The Journeys of Trees?
2: Again, I think it's try to cultivate the ability to look at a forest and see it as a transient collection of beings and just realize that it hasn't always been there in the shape that it's in now and it won't always be there in the, the future in the same form and um, try to use it as an exercise to think about the long time scales.
0: Yeah. Well, the more I rec- the more I understand my favorite cultures, the more I like them. And uh, after reading your book and, and then taking some of that information with me into the forest, it's almost like a guidebook to appreciating that bioculture. Zach St. George... The book is The Journeys of Trees, a story about forests, people, and the future. Thank you so much for your work and for sharing it with us today.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: You can find links to our guests in the notes for each week's show. That's at ricksteves.com radio. It's been a retreat since Roman times and offers a relaxing getaway from the bustle of Milan just an hour away. Coming up, we'll look at the appeal of Italy's Lake District with two friends who've made it their home. They'll take your calls at 877 333 7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A lake can come with its own personality, especially in Italy. There's a handful of decent sized lakes hugging the Swiss border about an hour from either Milan or the Dolomite Mountains. The district offers a nice climate, outdoors activities, resorts of many styles, and scenic attractions for travelers of any budget ready for a little fresh air and relaxation. 20 years ago, Patricia Fannin left Scotland to start tour guiding in the region and settled in at Lake Garda. Fellow Scotsman Donald White also left for the warmer world of Italy to teach English in Milan 30 years ago. He also leads tours in Europe and recuperates between assignments at his home on Lake Como. Patricia and Donald, welcome. Thank Thank you. you. So, Donald, you live in Lake Como, and Patricia, you live on Lake Garda. When I think of it geologically, I think that the peninsula of Italy is kind of welded to the Alps, and there's these little lakes that that ring the bottom of the mountains, just where Italy hits the mountains. When you go to the lake district, how does that differ in personality from the rest of Italy? Because most of us know Tuscany, we know Rome, we know Napoli, and so on. What's the difference between mainstream Italy and the lakes? Patricia.
4: Well, I can speak for, for Garda, it's, of course, a more relaxed lifestyle. It's uh, Living on the lakes is, uh, I'd say, more easygoing, more outdoors, more sports. Hmm. So it's less chaotic. But at the same time, because the lakes are closer to the borders, we get an influence from Austria or an influence from Switzerland. So we, we have the best of both. We bring Italy and Austria together.
0: Because a lot of people, you know, the intensity, the bella chaos, the beautiful chaos yeah. of Italy is a bit much. And you can moderate that up in the Lake District. Do you call it the Lake District or what is the name of the region?
4: Ilagi. We, I think we the would call it the Lakes. The, the lakes.
0: lakes. And Donald, you live on Lake Como and that's just an hour north of the big city of Milano. What, what's the difference when you go from your small lakeside
3: village into Milano? What What's the Well, the, actually, the it's more like Milan comes to the lakes because a lot of the homes on the lakes are owned by people from Milan and they just come out on the weekend. So, a, they come out to relax. In fact, a lot of people I know at, uh, in Varenna, they live in Milan, and they only come out on the weekend.
0: Well, there's a lot of famous people that do have a, a villa on the lake. I, oh, yes. I think there's even something called the Clooney Factor, isn't there? <laughs> what is the Clooney Factor, the George
3: Clooney <laughs> well, Factor? Well, I think that was more to do with property prices. That When, when he moved in, of course, uh, many famous people have come and lived. Before him, it was Gianni Versace, and then there's been a whole slew of famous people before that. But it kind of put up the... I think it put up property prices. I and any time yeah. a big villa came up for sale, the, the real estate agents, they'd put out a rumor that George Clooney was going to buy it, and somehow everybody would want to then, you know, pay more.
0: Well, when, <laughs> when you're in the market with people who where money is no option, they just want a view. It's not yeah, very good yeah. for the property prices. Patricia, when you're thinking of famous celebrities who have called the lakes home, are there some others?
4: Well, of course, uh, you had uh, Queen Caroline. Your mm. head of Britain, she lived in in Lake Como. Uh-huh. Garda, on the other hand, was home to Maria Callas. Maria Callas lived in Sermione. but uh, and it's well known for Mussolini. But Many people don't like to mention. We don't talk about that. that. Mussolini
3: was killed (laughs) on the lakes, wasn't he? He was. He was trying to get up to Switzerland, just across from your house. uh, What was going on? He was. uh, Um, He Well, he realized that the game was up, and he was in a convoy in uh, a German convoy. They were in German uniform. He and his mistress Clara Petacci. Yeah. And they were going up the western side of the lake. They got to the town of Dongo. Somebody recognized them. They hauled them out of the convoy, and the next day they were shot.
0: I remember he, he did a stupid mistake. He was, he was wearing an army uniform but fancy shoes, dictator shoes. Yes. Uh-huh. So it's, it's a fascinating region right there under Switzerland. It moderates the intensity of Italy. There's a lot of history there. It's sort of the spillover from Milano, lots of celebrities. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ilaghi, is that the word? Ilaghi. Ilaghi, yeah. the, mm-hmm. lakes the lakes of, of northern Italy. We're joined by Patricia Fannin and she lives in Lake Garda. We're also joined by Donald White, Donald calls the region of Lake Como his home. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and David's given us a call from Houston in Texas. David, are you thinking about traveling to Ilagi?
3: Yes, yes. We, we want to go to uh, Lake uh, Garda, and I wanted to compare and contrast those lakes to um, Como and Majore. In Garda, we're having a problem of... Uh, we want to do an Airbnb, but there seems to be a minimum one-week stay, and we don't have that long to stay. So I would like to ask your guides if there's some Airbnbs with a shorter stay mm-hmm. and uh, just some things to do in Garda.
0: Okay, so, David, uh, we'll we'll talk with Patricia because she lives on Lake Garda. Uh, Patricia, yeah. what do you like about Garda?
4: Well, well, David, Garda, it ticks all the boxes. A one-week stay is easy to cover. But Airbnbs, I would look at Riva del Garda. Um, if you do decide to unpack for a week in Garda, let me give you some ideas quickly. You could go to the opera in Verona if it's summertime. It's a one-hour drive to Verona. You could do a day trip to the Dolomites. And
0: by the way, that opera is in a Roman uh, theater, right? Amphitheater. It's It's excellent.
4: Mm -hmm. The nice thing about Garda is the water is coming fresh from the Dolomites, from the glacier, so you can swim in the lake every day. It's spotlessly clean. You can also do great hikes, David. If you're a hiker, we have some of the best hikes... And probably in northern Italy, we have great trails. If you're a cyclist, it is heaven. All levels. If you're a great cyclist, we can cycle you up and down the mountains with mountain bikes. But if you're not too good, we can get you a bike that's battery-operated. We can take you up in the van, and you can cycle down with a guide. So a week is easy to kill in Garda. What about
0: the town of Sermione? It's got this Sermione amazing is castle. is right
4: at the southern end of the lake. Mm-hmm. It has one of the larger castles. But there's about five castles on Lake Garda. Isn't, the, isn't
0: Garda... Which lake is famous with Germans for windsurfing? Garda. Garda. So there's a good wind yep, for windsurfing.
4: great windsurfing. Are you a sailor, David? You like to sail? No, no. Well, but uh, I don't do it on my own, but I'd like to maybe rent out something. You could easily take a quick sailing class at either Malchesny Sailing Club or um, Riva del Garda. If you take the kids with you, you can get them in, you know, like a canoeing class for 50 euros a week.
0: Is Riva del Garda... On the north of the lake?
4: It's right up north. And... Because
0: I love that town. Frankly, I don't like Sirmiano. It's very no, touristy. I, I don't like and it, and it it's, either. It's quite pretentious. Uh, it's famous. It's cute. But I just feel like it's too commercial. But Riva del Garda, to me, has personality and a warm welcome.
4: It's beautiful. It's a mixture of everything that's Austrian and everything that's Italian coming mm-hmm. together.
0: Okay, now, David, that's uh, Garda from somebody who has decided to live on Lake Garda. But Donald here decided to live on Lake Como. Donald how would you what's the charm of Lake Como for you compared to Garda
3: I think it's uh it's it has more culture more historic villas mm-hmm. I always think of Garda as being more sporty mm-hmm. although it has everything as well but sure. Lake Como uh, has definitely got the most dramatic scenery. You know, you—I think you hit it on
0: the nail. Sporty, because Garda is—it's very sporty. It's yes. very outdoorsy. Yeah, uh, hikes, uh, sailing, uh, windsurfing, mm-hmm. Lots of German, uh, you know, macho <laughs> men and so on. But
3: you go to—you go to Como. We have that as well in Como. But, but you I got would the say villas. La Dolce Vita is what is famous. Yeah, uh, the, you, you got the artists. We've got beautiful villas. Throughout the centuries, I mean, it's been the Salon of Milan, and Ah. the famous people would come there, they'd get away from the heat. and Verdi, Stendhal, Bellini. Stendhal, Bellini, Rossini, so many called them, Liszt, Franz Liszt. Rossini, lasagna. (laughs) They came (laughs) to Although we don't really eat pasta on Le Como. You don't? No. What do you eat? Polenta. Oh, polenta. And risotto, more than pasta. Because aren't the Venetian people called the, no, the Veneto people called the, what do you call it, the polen- Polentone. The whole of the north of Italy. Oh, the polenta eaters. Yes. What's the word again? Polentone. Polentone. I'm going to remember that.
0: <laughs> but, I, you know, I think that there is, if you want the great outdoors, perhaps uh, Garda, if you want um, sort of 19th century romantic villas, wisteria, promenades, old romantic steamers. Of course, Lake Como is famous for the resort
3: Bellagio. Yes, Bellagio, Bilacus, where the lake goes into two, because Lake Combs oh, got a Bellagio very... Bellagio uh, means. Yes. Is, bilacus from the Latin. And the, the tip right there is called Spunta... Uh, punto Spartivento. And what does that mean? It means the point of land that divides the winds. Punto Spartivento. Okay, so we go to Bellagio, and that's where people uh, visit with their poodles and so on. They're very it's nice. It's a little bit more upscale, yes. But across the way is my favorite town. Which is Varenna. Varenna. That's
0: right. <laughs> I know. I love Verena. And that's your your more laid-back, smaller town.
3: And you can get to Bellagio
0: in half an hour by the boat.
3: It's the best. It's absolutely the best location because we've got the train station, we have the ferries, and we have the motorways. So it's the most accessible from Milan. Okay, so we've got Como, Lago di Como. And what's the
0: Italian word for
3: Honeymoon. Uh, Luna di Miele.
0: Oh, Luna that's big. <laughs> that's, that's a big, big deal. business. I think oh, yes. uh, my sense is Lake Como is honeymoon lake. <laughs> it uh, It is. People uh, are so there people. on anniversaries or honeymoons or romantic getaways. And uh, I go there to convalesce. If I'm really fried and burned out, a couple of days on Lake Como, I'm I'm good as new. So we've got a, uh, a person who loves Lake Como and a person who loves Lake Garda. There is another big lake, Lake Maggiore. Uh, Patricia, how do you describe Lake Maggiore?
4: Well, I would say... Lake Maggiore, again, is, it's a lake that's it's partly in Italy and it's partly in Switzerland. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's even closer to the border. A little bit cooler, like Lake Como. Lake Maggiore, they're closer to Switzerland. So the temperature tends to be a bit cooler than, than the other lakes like Garda and the Molveno. But what I find with Lake Maggiore, again, you've got beautiful historic palaces there. You've got the Borromean Islands. On the island, there's a palace, got right? The, yeah, beautiful Borromean Islands, Isola Bella. But my favorite thing about Lake Maggiore, my favorite day trip, and, and you might have done this, is is take the train from Streza through the little valleys, the Cento Valleys, 100 valleys, there aren't really 100 valleys, and that little train goes through these little towns where, you know, the workers came from and days gone by, the poor people. Hmm. And it goes down into Switzerland and then take the steamer back from Switzerland into Italy.
0: So Switzerland is part on Lake Maggiore? Yeah,
4: yeah. local. So, so you can take
0: the train to Switzerland and then take the, the boat
4: back? You take the train... Um, to the border, okay, uh-huh. Domodossola, uh-huh. and then Domodossola, you get a, a, on a tiny little cog train that will take you it through the villages wonderful. into Switzerland, and then you pick up the ferry and you come back into Italy. It's a day trip.
0: So, and, and the main tourist town on Lake Maggiore would be Stresa.
4: I'd say Baveno or Stresa.
0: And from Stresa, you go out to those Borromean islands.
4: Easy. It's uh, twenty minutes on a on a, a boat or the lake ferries. All the lakes have wonderful ferry systems. Uh
0: huh. Okay. So, David, are you taking notes?
3: I am. I am. Thank you. That's all good information.
0: (laughs) Any more questions for Patricia or Donald?
3: Well, it seems like the Lake Garda is more for Germans and Italian uh, visitors, and the other lakes are more for American
1: tourists and abroad. Could they comment on that?
0: What do you think, Patricia?
4: Well, you see, Garda was originally for the German tourists, but Garda is getting a more—we get a lot of Scandinavians— because we have a lot of um, sailing races there as well, mm-hmm. we get a few Americans. Americans tend to stumble on us by chance, and they love it.
0: You know, one thing but to most remember Scandinavians? is Europeans are into nature and 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 fun in the sun, whereas Americans are more enthralled by old stuff and romantic stuff. Yeah. So it's logical that a European who's surrounded by old stuff and surrounded by, you know, 19th century Victorian or whatever romantic stuff, they wouldn't be so enthralled by that and they would go to uh, Lake Garda for the windsurfing or the sailing or the hiking. Whereas, you know, a lot of Americans would want would find Lake Como I think a little more interesting. Does that make sense?
4: Yes, yes, Lake Como is definitely, I'd say, more more scenically beautiful and lovely old villas uh, too. But but Garda does also have, if you want that more relaxing pace, Gardoni Riviera. It's where the Austrian emperor and a lot of the Austrian aristocracy at the breakup of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, it's where they built these gorgeous villas. Mm. with well, you, 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 and you kind of see both of them, and they're so easy to visit.
0: You rent a car, you use the train. Hey, David, have a good time when you visit the, what do you call it, the Lagi? The Lagi. The Lagi, the lakes of... North Italy.
3: Thanks, David.
4: Thank you, Rick, for having me on and Houston,
3: Texas loves you. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: The lakes that inspired romantic-era poets and attract A-list celebrities today are our focus right now on travel with Rick Steves. Our guides to Northern Italy's Lake District are Patricia Fannin and Donald White in a conversation we recorded prior to the pandemic. Donald was also with us recently to talk about the nearby city of Milan on program number 664 in January. You can listen again from our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. Jeff's calling from Scottsdale, Arizona. Jeff, do you have a plan to go to Italy in the future and check out the north? I do, I do. Uh, I am flying into and out of Milan, mm-hmm. 10 days, and um, right now have the first three nights in Milan and two nights in Verena on Como. Okay. I'm to coming up with an itinerary, and uh, obviously... Some of the things you all have just been talking about hit home, no question about it. But I was also wondering about the Bernina Express mm-hmm. into the Alps. Um, I would like to touch them before I, I return home. I love this idea, and you got a cool plan. Your are 10 days in and out of Milano, very easy train connection up to Verena, which is midway up Lake Como. So you got the big city, three days, and that'll be a, a, a big highlight for you. Two days to relax on the lake with Verena as your home base. I would rent a car and venture up into Switzerland, or you could take the train. I know Don's a skier. Mm -hmm. Don, let's think of leaving Italy for a minute, using Lake Como as a a springboard. What lies just to the north in Switzerland? That
3: is a wonderful trip, because you can do from the Berlin Express two areas. One way you go up through the the Valtellina, which is a wonderful wine-growing area, Mm -hmm. Um, beautiful area for food as well, and then you would come back by Switzerland, so you come by St. Moritz, the Engadin, the very Engadin. spectacular. So yes,
0: uh, E-N-G-A-D-I-N-E, yeah, Engadin. Engadin. And they speak that, that's where the, the Romance, so yes. 2% of Switzerland uh, has spoken this old, old language.
3: Yeah, yeah, and that is actually one of the very spectacular journeys. So you can do it all by train as well, yeah. if you want to take the train up to Tirano. And then you get the, I would say, the most spectacular part of the Bernina Express, going over to St. Moritz. And then you would come back by post-bus. Oh, and but it, if is you want to, tourists, it is coordinated for the tourists this it's, is a popular You can do trip. this as a day trip from Varenna. It is possible. Whoa. Absolutely. But you might want to take the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you could drive over the Bernina as well in the summer yeah. Yeah. and then perhaps take the train journey just as fun there and back and maybe spend a night up in St. Moritz or up in the Engadin, I If you're going up there, spend down. a night up yeah. in the... Because yeah.
0: it's, a, it's a unique part of Switzerland and San Moritz. It it's is. It's very dramatic. It is.
3: And also the north of Italy, the the, the Valtellina did actually apply to become part of Switzerland. Their application was rejected, but they're very <laughs> similar in mentality well, 10, to the Swiss. Well, 10% of
0: Switzerland speaks Italian, the Ticino, yes. and yeah. you can yeah. visit that also yeah. as a springboard from this region of northern Italy. Jeff, you've got a good a good um, amount of places you can fill those 10 days with beautifully, I'd say. Great. Thanks very much. Good luck on your trip, Jeff. Thanks for the call. All right. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are talking about the lakes of northern Italy, and we're joined by two... Um, Scottish expats who managed to go to Italy 20, 30 years ago, fell in love with it, and now they live in the northern part of Italy on its romantic and beloved lakes. This has been so much fun talking about a region of Italy that I really enjoyed, but I, I to be honest, haven't explored enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just close with a, a favorite moment in the lakes of northern Italy. Patricia Vannett.
4: Well, you know, one of my favorite moments is is taking... The, the private boats or the, or the lake ferry out to the islands of the Borromean Islands. I love to... the All three islands are very different because... So this is
0: Lago Maggiore. This is
4: Lago Maggiore. And when you get off on the first avenue you have this beautiful, beautiful palace, these marbles, it's very over-the-top decor, and this belonged to an important family, the Borromean family. You know, they're still pretty important today in Italy... So the the
0: nobles centuries ago went to Lago Maggiore, and the travelers today can enjoy
3: the same thrills. Donald White, what is a moment you'd like to uh, just kind of entice people with about the lakes? I think people think about La Dolce Vita. In fact, I named one of my houses that I lived in La Dolce Vita, and uh, people love to enjoy the sunset from the terrace or even better, take a boat out. If you can go out, many people now are, are are going to give you a sunset cruise where you'll have some Prosecco, take you to a nice restaurant for some antipasti and really enjoy the sunset over the lake. And that has become one of the great things to do. It's very chilled it, out for the evening. Very You're not chilled. sightseeing. You're not doing anything no. hard. We're just relaxing and enjoying y- you know, the ambience. You just stoked a memory, a beautiful memory I had on Lake Como. <laughs> I went over to uh, Menaggio for a dinner. Mm-hmm.
0: And the dinner was so good, I missed the last ferry. I had to hire a taxi to get across the, the you lake. You mean didn't swim? I didn't swim. <laughs> I hired a taxi, and the taxi we went across the lake, and the, it was uh, it was just that beautiful twilight hour. Yeah, yes. And we stopped in the middle of the lake on the way back to yes, Verena, yeah. and I just thought, this is magnificent. Yes. Lago di Como.
3: Oh, no and me. you want to be playing some Verdi as you sip your prosecco outside oh, Verdis Villa? Oh, yes. oh my <laughs> goodness! Bello. Well, Bello. Ricordi's
0: Villa, Donaldo, Patricia. Prego.
1: Prego. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kazimura Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Robert Frazier and Kevin Yeager at the Feature Story News Studios in Washington and New York for their help this week. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio.
0: Enjoy Europe on a Rick Steves bus tour. Our bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and dozens of exciting itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.